Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, meaning Jesus, he should report it, that they might seize him. In other words, there was a bounty on his head, which Judas eventually seized and took hold of. And so the question, the million-dollar question is, would Jesus come to Jerusalem for the big annual Passover feast? Six days before, on a Friday, Jesus came to Bethany, which is on the backside of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. Now, the Jews wanted to seize him before the Passover. You can imagine people all over Jerusalem had seen his miracles, they'd heard his preaching, and there would be an absolute uproar. And they don't want that. So they want no trouble, they want no crowds, they want no worry. This begins Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life. And John, in his book, spends almost half of it, half of it, on one week. Close to Christ's death, three years of ministry coming to a close, and what we see in the hearts of people is something remarkable. Those who love Christ, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we see a deepening of their love and their affection for him. But those who opposed him, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, Judas, we see a hardening and a deep bitterness, hatred for him that takes over. So let's just read John chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And it is in the power of your spirit, nourishment for our souls. Spiritual nourishment. It is transformative, God. And so I pray that you would take the truths of your word and apply it to each of us individually, meeting us in a, in a unique way in how we need to be ministered to, Father. And I pray also that the glory of Christ and who he is and what he's done would impact our lives, that you'd give us the eyes to see it, the eyes of faith, Lord, to behold his greatness and want to love and worship him more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When our youngest son, Liam, was quite small, he got quite sick one day on a Friday morning, and he started wheezing and had a very hard time breathing. Jennifer took him to the doctor, and his 
oxygen levels were way, way, way down. He was breathing out of his stomach, if you've ever seen that, haven't you? Where they're not breathing, you can see their stomach going in and out. He was not getting enough oxygen. We were able to get medicine, and within a day, the blueness and the breathing cleared up. The, The real danger that the doctor told us, if this was not treated, his lungs would continue to take in less and less oxygen, and eventually his body would turn blue, and bad things would happen. And we're so thankful they didn't. Now, the reason I tell you that story is it's a great picture of unconfessed sin in our life. That it starts small, but often if it's undealt with or ignored, it destroys over time our relationship with Christ. It creates a distance there. Now, that's exactly what we see with Judas Iscariot here. Even though he's been close to Christ and he's heard all the teachings about caring for the poor, hasn't he? He's seen the miracles. He's heard the dangers of money. His heart is hard, and it's angry, and he's unrepentant. So that he even turns to sweet Mary, and he rebukes her for taking this costly ointment and anointing Jesus. And the reason he does it is because he wants the money. My friends, this is how unrepentant sin works in our life. It's a slow work of decomposing the graces of the heart. Another way to say that is, it slowly decomposes the work of God in our heart while bringing at the same time disorder to our lives. We become like a musical instrument that's hung on the wall and neglected more and more out of tune as we don't deal with our hearts. Notice, it is more than just attending things that restores the heart and the communion with God that we so long for. Judas sat under the best teaching, didn't he? Ever. He saw the most powerful ministries ever. And his heart was never improved. Isn't that amazing? So we can sit under gracious ordinances all day long. You can listen to the most amazing preacher and teacher, whoever that is for you, and our hearts can grow dull in their graces. So that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control seem to be a distant memory. Why? Because God's means to give you grace works when you are keeping your heart and engaging your heart in them. So it's how you read the Word, applying it to yourself, not just reading it. How you pray, listening to God as you pray and dialoguing with Him. How you take the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving and with repentance. So that you are using all the tools, the means of grace to keep you away from darkness and to maintain closeness and communion with the Savior. So here's the main idea today. We must have a constant jealousy over our hearts to keep it in communion with Jesus. And I would add, and away from darkness. Now in John 12, we see three things that we want to talk about. First, our position as believers in Christ, what it should be. 
Second, what our purpose is. And third is what a prideful, sinful heart will do to us when we give into it. So here's point one. So turn in your Bibles there with me. Point one, a picture of our position seated with Christ. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Christ arrives on the scene six days before the Passover feast, and he goes to Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, over the Mount of Olives, Remember, everybody's talking. Will he come? They're looking for him. Do you know they're going to arrest him? There's a bounty. And there's a command by the Jews at that time in leadership, report him. Report him if you see him so we can arrest him. Now in the little city of Bethany, he sits at, there's a supper for him. There's a feast with many coming. The book of Mark tells us it's in the house of Simon the leper which maybe means he healed this man, Simon, or maybe Simon just had a really big house. Not sure. There's Martha. She's serving, right? Doing what Martha does. And there's Lazarus. And notice what it says about him, the man who'd just been raised from the dead. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Now the purpose of the feast was to honor Christ for raising Lazarus from the dead. He had just been raised. And now he is sitting at the banquet table with Jesus. What a picture of resurrected life, isn't it? We are raised into newness of life, aren't we? When we follow Jesus to eat and drink with the Savior. To sit with Him. To fellowship with Him. Raised from the spiritual grave. We're born again. We have life in us so that we too can do just like Lazarus did and sit and sup and fellowship with the Savior. See, here's the gospel. We were once dead spiritually like Lazarus, far off. Now we've been brought near by the power of the Holy Spirit simply through faith in the work of Christ for us. How near? Ephesians 2, verse 5 and 6. Listen, my friends. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, just like Lazarus, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a Christian, you've been raised from the dead into new spiritual life. You are positionally seated with Christ before God. This is all of our perfect standing. We have communion with Him, we're close to Him, but also positionally we're connected to Him before the Lord. Now, We must have, as His people, a constant jealousy over our hearts to not get up from the table and leave. To have communion with the Savior. And we do that by knowing our position is in Christ. What does that mean, Rusty? Well, it means this. God sees all mankind in two formats. Either in their sins... Or in the righteousness of Christ. That's it. Those are the two heads of all mankind. And when someone becomes a Christian like Lazarus, Paul says they are raised. They go from being in their sin to suddenly being in Christ's righteousness. Seated in Him. 
This is the rebirth. This is what it means to be born again. To go from the head there in our sins under Adam to being under Christ, connected to He and His righteousness. Okay? Well, how am I sitting in heaven, like the text says, when I'm right here? (laughs) If I'm joined to Him, I'm connected to Him in heaven, like the Scripture says, well, how do I do that when I'm right here? Well, in God's eyes, you're before Him. Isn't that amazing? And you're before Him seated or joined in Christ. You're before Him covered with the purity and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. Isn't that comforting? Now, our first step, and then in living an obedient life as His followers, is knowing our position as a Christian. And that is, in the Father's eternal judgments, simply by grace and through your faith, you are seated in His Son, in His holy life, in His perfect life. Now, how does that help me on a daily basis? Well, because we all strive for obedience and fail, don't we? We all have times when we struggle in our heart and we recognize and we come face to face with our failings, our brokenness, and our sin. And our flesh says always, run from Him. But see, it's our position that tells us to come close. When our flesh says, you are dirty, flee to the mountains. It's our position that says, you are seated in Christ, draw close. You are seated. The Father still wants to come. The Son has taken the judgment for us. First then, believing that our position is seated in Christ, but now let's move from our position to our purpose. In other words, you might say your position enables your purpose. Here's point two. A picture of our purpose, a heart full of worship. A heart full of worship. Verse 3 with me. Verse 3. So the gospel starts with position, and then it moves to purpose. You see that? Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Notice what she does. She gave her best, didn't she, in worship. Jesus had just raised her brother to life when there was no hope. She loves him deeply. She worships him by giving him all that she has. The spikenard oil, which would have cost around 300 denarii or a year's worth of wages. And once you break the bottle, it's broken. They didn't have little screw-on tops back then. That's it. And so when it's open, it's open, and you've got to use it. So it was her life savings, probably. The most valuable thing she probably possessed. And she pours it out on him. But not only that, 1 Corinthians 15 back then says the beauty or the glory of a woman was in her hair. It actually uses beauty and glory. That the glory and the beauty of a woman was in her hair. And notice what she does. She wiped his feet with her hair. The very best that she had. And she uses it to anoint his feet. Pouring out what others treasure up. Giving to Christ her savings, her beauty. The best of what she has for him. In other words, she just sold the family lake house. And gave it all to him. 
verse 7. Notice this plan. She has kept this for the day of my burial. She knew this day was coming. This wasn't a surprise. Now, John, when he beheld Christ, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hi. How? By dying for us. He then goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for the sheep. God's people had heard Jesus say he would be laying down his life for the sheep. And Mary then keeps this oil tucked away in a private place for that very purpose. She understood that when he dies, I want to honor him. I'm saving the best I have for his death. Why? Why now? Verse 7 in your Bibles. Verse 7. And she kept this for the day of my burial. Friends, he's one week away from his crucifixion. Everybody is looking for him. And she knows it. And I think she gets it. And so that she anoints his body. Those days dead bodies would have smelled and they would have washed them and anointed them with some type of fragrant oil. And she does that for him before he dies. Now, many would think, oh, she's just wasting oil. Well, Christ knows her heart, doesn't he? She is worshiping him. She's preparing him for death with the best she has financially and physically her own hair, all her heart poured out for the Savior. Now, Mary understood her purpose was to worship Christ here, how she poured out, she gave her best, the things that others treasure up and keep for themselves, she gave. Why? Because she loved Him. She loved Him for raising her brother Lazarus when he didn't have to. She loved Him for being her shepherd. She loved Him for the salvation. You know, years ago, there was a, um, a young mother with a child making her way across South Wales. And she came into a terrible t- snowstorm, like we have here in Dothan, Alabama. And so you can relate. And as she's trudging across the, the countryside there in Wales, the snow gets deeper and deeper. Her visibility gets less and less. And she realizes she's not going to make it. And so she dies. Well, soon after, they send out a group looking for her, and they see a mound, they dig down, they find her, and she's stripped of her clothing. And they begin to dig, and they find a child who's wrapped in all this woman's clothing, and he's alive, living. She had given her life for this child, hadn't she? showing the depths of her love for him. Years later, this boy became the Prime Minister of England, David Lloyd George, and one of England's greatest statesmen. My friends, what a difference it makes to know the story of our birth, that his mother loved him so much that she had given her life for him. And so it is with us spiritually The story of our birth is just this. Now Mary knew that. She knew that Christ would soon die. She had heard Him repeatedly say it. And therefore, she worshipped Him with the best that she had. Now my friends, this is not just Mary's purpose. 
This is the purpose of all believers. And the very reason that Christ has saved us to be His, to sit at His table and to worship Him. Now we live by faith, and faith lives by exercise. If you're taking notes, write that down. We live by faith, faith lives by exercise, grows by exercise. And the greatest exercise of your faith is worship. Worship is at the heart of our spiritual life. Everything in your spiritual life depends upon the type of God that you know and worship. For Mary, she knew Christ to be the most loving, gracious friend, saver, savior, and healer. And therefore, she worshiped him with her whole heart, with the best of what she had. Do you see the connection there? Because of who he was, she gave all she had for him. Now, one of the reasons this is important is for you, because the character of the worshiper will always be molded by the character of what he or she worships. The character of the worshiper will become like the character of what he or she worships. So if your God is cruel, is angry, is a hater of people, is a harsh God, always angry when you don't perform perfectly, your heart will become the same. And you will do it in the name of Christ. And what does that look like? Well, I think often it looks like a church that's demanding. When people don't show up for Sunday school, they're shamed. They're looked down upon. When ladies who have small children can't sign up for everything, they're guilted and they're exhausted. When the gospel of grace is not at the center of why we do everything that we do, the church begins on to take on the character of guilt and shame as it's molded by the harsh God that they see that they're worshiping. Does that make sense? But if, like Mary, you come to know Christ as the most loving, tender, forgiving, selfless Savior, the Christian worshiper will become like this, like Christ, and you will begin to love to exercise your faith and worship in the car, in the park, in the shower, on Sunday mornings. Like Mary, serving Him with all that you have joyfully as a response of how much you love Him and adore Him. First, our position then is seated with Christ in righteousness. Second, as righteous people, we have a purpose and a calling, and that is to worship and enjoy Him. Third, we'll finish with this, a picture of pride. There is something that gets in the way of resting and worship, and it's called pride. Verse 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. Let's read that once more. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge over the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see Jesus' heart? You see how covetous it is? You see, he sees the valuable oil, doesn't he? He sees it poured upon Jesus, and his heart becomes bitter, becomes angry. Mark 14 says he sees it as being wasted. 
His heart is more concerned about money than about Jesus. His heart is more concerned about money than about Jesus. But notice, he cloaks his sin. He says this, Why was this oil not sold and given to the poor? (laughs) Did he really care about the poor? No. He's posing so he can get the money. His heart is full of covetousness, a desire for himself. Now steps in the shepherd. And I love these words. Look in your Bible at verse 7 with me. Notice the shepherd's response. Let her alone. But he wouldn't have said it like that. He wouldn't have said, let her alone. He would have said, let her alone. He rebukes him. And he does it in front of everybody who's sitting at the feast. They all hear it. Matthew 26 tells us that the disciples were feeling the same way as Judas does. Their hearts were beginning to be influenced by Judas. And so when Christ rebukes Judas in front of all these people, he loses face. Now, here, the seed of bitterness is planted in Judas. Judas, then, sparked by this, goes and sells Christ and betrays him. Matthew 26, 14 records the next step for Judas is this. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Judas, angry he didn't get the money. Judas, Bitter, he'd been rebuked. Judas, prideful, he just lost face with the disciples who were beginning to respect his opinion, decides, I'm going to get paid, and I'm going to put Jesus in his place. And so he goes and he sells him for 30 pieces of silver, the slave price of the day. Greed, covetousness, pride, powerful things in the heart of the follower of Jesus, if not repented of, can take over and lead us away. How do we think and live this? Okay, I get the story. I've connected some pieces. How does that affect the way I live? There's one thing I want you to see. Love for Christ is never wasted. Your love for Christ is never wasted. Your time with Christ is never wasted. What do you mean? Judas is saying, Mary's love, her worship, her oil, anointing Christ, is wasted because it could have been used for self. See that? Do you feel like, my friends, things for Christ are wasted? Please listen. Because they could have been used for you, or your family, or your friends. Your tithes, or wasted money. Your Wednesday night small group, it's wasted time. Could have been mowing the grass or deer hunting. Keeping the Sabbath is a wasted day. I could have been working this day and getting ahead in my business. I could have had an extra day staying at the deer camp, hunting or fishing or down at a salon somewhere. Could have stayed overnight at the Alabama game. Why is all that not wasted? But I would say it's the most valuable and incredible time in your life. Because 
It's heart work. It's heart work. Let me explain, and we'll finish. Before you're converted, put your faith in Christ. We oppose God, and we're dependent upon self. What rules our life before Jesus is self-love. When we receive Christ, He renovates our lives after His image. He does a great work of renovation, gospel renovation, so that self-dependence is replaced now by faith in Christ. I no longer depend upon myself. I depend upon Jesus. My faith is there. Self-love is replaced by love for God and love for you all, the brothers and the sisters. Self-will is surrendered to God's will. Self-seeking becomes seeking God's will in all of my life. Now, the most difficult thing with conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart in communion with the Savior, to stay at the table. This is why worship, serving, praying, reading the Scripture, listening to sermons by themselves, without the power of the Spirit, give us no grace. But when we apply them to ourselves in the power of the Spirit, with thanksgiving and repentance and praise and self-examination, listening to God, the life has new victory over darkness and comes alive as it flowers with the grace of the Lord. Grace in you depends on grace outside of you. You are not a fountain of grace. It comes from God to you. And He infuses it and gives it to you as you engage your heart in His means of grace. So don't allow the enemy to fool you like he did Judas and the disciples. That love for Christ is wasted. Time in worship, wasted. It's never wasted. Time with Christ is never wasted. Time with family in worship is never wasted. It's just the opposite. What you need most, what's your most productive time in your life, and will lead you towards a heart like Mary to worship and enjoy Him and be transformed, is the time that you engage your heart and worship in the means of grace. And when the Holy Spirit is working through you, that's when our lives are transformed. It's the absolute most productive time. Make sense? Can I get an amen? Good. I'm glad it does make sense. Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you so much. Um, thank you, Jesus. What a great picture of the gospel. We are all dead in our sins. And Lazarus, dead, Jesus tells him to come out, come to me. And he does. The bandages are unwrapped. He's alive. The next thing we see, he's sitting at the banquet with Jesus. And that's us. That's all of us here who know Jesus personally. Father, thank you so much. You brought us out of the tomb. You peeled back the old layers of the flesh and the desires. And you've seated us with Christ. Our position now is holy and righteous as a child before you. And yet now we can have fellowship. And it's our times of fellowship that are the most transformative and the most valuable. I pray for each of us here that you would guard us against the lies of the enemy that says, this time should be for you. This time should be self-time. 
go and do something else. And then we see the graces of our heart drying up. God, let us have a jealous pursuit of you in worship. Not just going through the motions, not just listening, but asking you to transform us. Lord, you to know us, you to be close to us. And we ask that now through the Lord's Supper. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I have the elders come forward, please?